Welcome to this episode of Unpack Parliament. We acknowledge the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, where this podcast was produced. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and extend this respect to the lands you're listening from. This episode contains mention of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Sin Media and the Parliament of Victoria present your questions answered in Unpack Parliament. Within the colossal walls of Parliament House lies a past of ancient and modern power dynamics. Historically, keeping people in power in check hasn't always been the easiest thing. Thus, when the six colonies federated in 1901, they ensured that no one person or group had all the authority, through a concept known as the separation of powers. Victoria's system of governance has been modelled on the British's Westminster system, A concept embedded within our constitution is the separation of powers. The importance of the separation of powers centres around one concept, accountability. Here's Liberal MP and Shadow Attorney General Michael O'Brien to explain. My name's Michael O'Brien. I'm the member for Malvern in the state of Victoria, in the state of Victorian Parliament, but I'm also Shadow Attorney General. Uh, So in representative of the Liberal Party and the opposition spokesman on legal affairs, so Shadow Attorney General. Well, power is uh, something that can be very dangerous when it's concentrated in too few hands. So in our system of government, we have what's called the separation of powers, and it says that the three great powers of the state, which are to make laws, uh, to apply laws, and then to interpret laws, should be separated out. They shouldn't, it shouldn't be the same body performing all three uh, of those actions. So when we talk about the separation of powers, we mean the legislative power, the executive power and the judicial power. And it's really important that that each acts as a check and balance on the other. Michael continues, providing an example of what could occur if power was concentrated in one branch or another. Yeah, if you had a court, for example, which was unaccountable to anybody, uh, then then you know, that means that people uh, are at risk of, of you know, a bad judge or a bad, bad uh, set of judges. Uh, effectively taking away people's rights. Equally, if you had a parliament that acted capriciously, that, that acted in a way which was uh, fundamentally at odds with, with democratic rights uh, and you didn't have a court that could strike down bad laws, then democracy would be sacrificed. So separation of power says you know, the power to make laws, the power to enforce laws and the power to interpret laws are three really important powers, but they must be kept separate from each other's council. The legislative, the executive, and the judicial branches are the three foundational parts of Victoria's democracy, and each have distinct authority and responsibility. But firstly, what do these groups even mean or do? The first group is the legislative branch, and it refers to Parliament as a whole. Here's fellow SIN member Josh Weaver to explain the concept of Parliament. Parliament is made up of two houses, the Legislative Assembly and the Legislative Council. These are informally known as the Lower House and the Upper House. The Legislative Assembly is recognised by the green colour in Parliament building. It's composed of 88 elected members from 88 different areas in Victoria that roughly have a population of 100,000 people. These areas of 100,000 people are known as electorates, and the member who receives the most votes within that electorate gets one of those 88 seats. In contrast, the Legislative Council is known for its red colour, and instead of voting being done in an area of 100,000 people, voting is fixed in eight different electoral areas regardless of population. These eight areas are 
the Eastern Victoria Region, the North Eastern Metropolitan Region, the Northern Metropolitan Region, the Northern Victoria Region, the South Eastern Metropolitan Region, the Southern Metropolitan Region, the Western Metropolitan Region, and the Western Victoria Region. There are 40 members total in the Upper House, which means five representatives per Legislative Council electorate. Thus arises the saying, you have six MPs representing you, five from the Legislative Council and one from the Legislative Assembly. Ultimately, the distinction between both houses act as a further pillar of separating the responsibility and accountability of the people in power. The legislative branch, that is, Parliament's primary role is to create laws. However, like everything in the legislative process, there are further checks and balances before a law can just be created. A law, whilst debated in Parliament, is referred to as a bill. A bill can only be officially recognised as a law when it passes through both the Legislative Assembly and the Legislative Council with majority support. In both houses, there is a three-step process of consideration called readings. The first reading acts as an introduction to the bill. The second reading has the bill debated in detail and can go through the various stages of consideration and amendment. And the third and final reading is the vote. If the bill doesn't receive majority support, the bill is amended or scrapped. This same process is then repeated in the Upper House. Once it is passed by the Legislative Council, the bill goes to the Governor, a representative of the English monarch, for royal assent to become an Act of Parliament and therefore a law. Now, if you personally wish to read these archive debates, you can do so through the parliamentary record called Hansard, available online and in print. But if you do, you may notice that the majority of bills are passed quite smoothly a stark contrast to the stereotype of Parliament being a place of argument and conflict. Whilst important debate certainly occurs, the underwhelming reality is that most of the work parliamentarians do is often bipartisan. Here's Michael again, referring to the part of the parliamentary day known as Question Time, which is a part in every sitting day where members of Parliament can ask ministers questions about the government's actions. It takes place in both Legislative Assembly and the Legislative Council, and has three parts. Questions without notice ministers' statements, and constituency questions. Michael O'Brien. Um, look, I, I think that people see question time, and you know, whether you're watching state politics or federal politics, question time is always the most willing part of the parliamentary day. You know, it's Because it's where ministers who, ex- who are given great power, great authority, it's where the opposition tries to hold them accountable for how they use it. And you know, and I've been a, I've been a minister, I've been a treasurer, and I've also been on the other side. I've been a shadow minister, asking questions. And yet, as a minister, you know, you it's like if you go anywhere and you're going to get some hostile questions, you probably get defensive about it. Uh, and that's where ministers should be held accountable. So yeah, question time is very willing because it's important that ministers uh, are answerable for the power they wield in our name. Um, but the rest of Parliament, it's often not. I mean, I'd say. of the legislation that goes through goes through with bipartisan support. But you never read about that. You know why? Because conflicts, conflicts interesting. Conflict sells newspapers. Conflict generates clicks. Now, it's important that you'd like to think that your major parties would would come to agreement on important issues that affect our state. And I'd say four out of five times we actually do. But one out of five times, and maybe it's a difference over... It might be values, that, that we're coming to issues through different value prisms. Maybe it's a question of competence, that we just don't think the government's doing a good job. Um, and th- that's where you do get the conflict. 
Uh, but yeah, look, the media's got a role to play in it. Um, they they love to they love the heat and the light. They love the battle. Uh, it's more interesting, they think, to their readerships or viewers or listeners. Um, but yeah, the reality is, I'd say four out of five times, we, we, we shake hands and we go, yep, this is the right answer. Unpack Parliament. The two major parties in Victoria are the Labour and Liberal parties. Oftentimes, these two groups, after an election, form what is officially referred to as government. Government is the political party with the majority of seats in the Legislative Assembly, That is, from the 88 seats in the Legislative Assembly, at least 45 seats are occupied by one party. From this power in numbers, government comprises the second branch of Victoria's separation of powers, the executive branch. Well, recently this year, the Victorian Parliament and the Victorian Law Foundation hosted a panel discussion answering this and many other questions related to the separation of powers. At the time of this recording, the Labour Party currently forms the Victorian government. Here's Matt Fregan, MP, the Deputy Speaker, on that panel discussion, introducing that difference between executive power, that is, government, and legislative power, that is, parliament. How would you say executive power is different from the power of the parliament in a Westminster system? I guess in practice, and uh, so I'm, I sit in the Legislative Assembly uh, where the, the Premier sits um, and we have the majority, which is not always, but usually the case for the government. So the executive and the members of parliament um, are in the same house and also in ministers and members of parliament are in this house as well. So the executive... Um, the Premier and Cabinet will uh, bring bills to the House that are then debated by the wider uh, members, including ministers, backbenchers, etc. The executive branch is headed by the Governor and includes the leaders of the government's party, the Premier and various ministers who form the Cabinet. The government is the primary group that introduces bills to the Parliament and initiates that process of eventually creating a new law. In fact, whilst anybody can bring a bill, if a bill is initiated by a non-government party member, it is referred to as a private member's bill. However, whilst elections are held every four years, government projects can often span for many more years than that. Thus, oftentimes, the government's plans and agendas that are being introduced as bills are usually prepared several years in advance. This work is mainly headed by those in the Chief Parliamentary Council. The executive branch is the smallest of the three branches, but are likely the ones you see the most of in the media due to their prominence in creating the majority of new legislation. Now that we've covered the two branches that exist and operate in Parliament, we'll move on to the body independent of the lawmaking process entirely, the judicial branch. The judiciary refers to Victoria's courts and judges. Their primary role is to impartially apply and interpret law on cases based solely on the facts of the case and the already written law. Additionally, they ensure that laws Parliament makes are in line with Parliament's constitutional powers and boundaries. Lastly, the courts maintain a complete independence from the lawmaking process and Parliament. The judiciary is not at all involved in the politics of creating legislation and they have a very limited ability to change laws once they have been created retired County Court Judge Philip Misso, who we chatted to over Zoom. 
Do you think that the separation of powers model is still fit for its purpose? Look, I do. Um, I'll say one thing. Um, our system of courts has become very expensive. Uh, for someone to litigate a personal right, uh, we see, for example, lots of defamation cases. They seem to be in the news all the time. Uh, you lose that. It's costly. Um, and we've seen that with a particularly um, prominent soldier uh, of recent days. Um, but here we are in a setting where um, you know that if you have a right, you can go to a court, you can have a judge who will, who will behave independently, who will behave objectively, who will apply the law in the best way that that judge can interpret it, uh, absent any outside influence. Now, if you've got that situation, what happens if you're in conflict with government? Let's say you've got a planning case where, and, and, and I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way, let's assume um, a, a minister acts absolutely capriciously, just decides, I'm going to do X, and it's contrary to the law. Um, you can go to a court and have that rectified. Um, now, I think to have the balance that is created by the separation of powers, um, one only needs, and, and I want to be very careful in saying this, uh, when one looks overseas, there are courts in some countries where things happen and we look at it and think, how could that possibly be? How, how could this court system allow uh, decisions to be made which are patently favourable to the government of the day. We don't have that in this country. I mean, I, uh, as I was preparing to have a chat to you this afternoon, I looked up some cases uh, where Supreme Court, Federal Court, High Court have essentially said to uh, Parliament, you, you can't make those laws. They are unconstitutional. Now, I think that's a very, very good thing that we have a separation where people like you and I, even me, can go along and say to a court, well, hang on a moment, this is wrong. This, this government action is wrong. And, and you know that a judge will fearlessly, I hope, fearlessly hear that case, irrespective of what the government of the day might be, irrespective of what pressure the government might try to bring. So I think, I think it works, and I think it's a very good model. But uh, you know, like like all things in life, uh, there are occasions when perhaps things don't work as well as we would like. But it's a very good system, and it's a thousand years old. You know, it's 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 seen the test of time and uh, through our inherited law from the United Kingdom. So I'm I'm certainly of the view in in my position as a county court judge that it's a very good system, and we've got a very good, sound, stable, and well tested constitutional system. This is Unpack Parliament. Further to this is Clerk of the Legislative Council, Robert MacDonald, explaining the conventions Parliament has in respecting the court's independence. And that leads me to think about, we have a convention in this place, um, the Subjudice Convention. Um, so, um, as I said, that members can ask ministers about anything um, in, in relation to government administration. 
but a, a restriction the House imposes on itself. It's not something that's a written rule, but it's a convention that's always been applied, is called the Subjudice Convention, whereas something is before a court, um, the President and in the, in the um, Legislative Assembly, the Speaker, will rule that, that issue out. They will say that is subjudice. It's inappropriate while something is before the court um, for that matter to be discussed in this place. Now, once it's decided, as Matt said, once it's decided by the court, um, if, if there is a, you know, um, the Parliament doesn't think um, the, the outcome is what, is what the, the Parliament want, would want to achieve, it can look at the law again. Um, but ultimately, how that law is applied in a particular set of circumstances, the Parliament is very keen to stay out of that lane, leave that to the courts, um, and not have any conversation um, about those issues um, while it's before the courts. And it is a challenge. I see it for ministers sometimes where there are questions asked. Um, and sometimes you know, ministers are aware of that. They say, we don't want to answer these questions. They don't want to be in any way seen to be trying to influence the outcome um, in court. Um, and I suppose sometimes the public don't understand that and so want answers from the minister. Mm. But the ministers try um, as best they can to say while it's before the court. Um, and the subjudice um, convention is sometimes extended more broadly um, to um, things like a coroner because um, they also are looking at particular circumstances, making finding of findings about particular people um, to, again, not comment on those things while they're under... Um, while they're under consideration by that court. This independence of the judiciary is firmly stressed, even during times of emergency, most notably being Victoria's lockdown. Josh Weaver again. From 2020 to 2021, the Victorian Parliament created new legislation enabling the Victorian government extra powers considering the pandemic's extraordinary circumstance. These acts were in order of their timeline. The COVID-19 Omnibus Emergency Measures Act of 2020, the Public Health and Wellbeing Amendment, or the State of Emergency Extension Act of 2021, and the Public Health and Wellbeing Amendment, Pandemic Management Act of 2021. Nevertheless, throughout this whole period, each piece of legislation was open to judicial scrutiny as well as public challenge. And, fairly enough, a public challenge arose. In a 2021 case, a person charged for breaching stay-at-home orders by an authorised officer had argued the law was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court judge eventually dismissed the claim rebutting that the circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic had warranted the Victorian government's provisions at the time, and ultimately decided that the constitutional limitations on the government's exercise of power had not been breached. Nevertheless, the case exemplifies the public's ability to have a law that they don't think is quite right to be reviewed by the judiciary. It also shows the judiciary's independence in being able to review legislation and consequently their ability to decide whether or not such legislation is within the bounds of the Constitution, without the fear of losing support or backing, because they aren't tied to the lawmaking process. Clerk of the Legislative Council, Robert MacDonald, elaborates. So certainly, like the court, and as Haron has already mentioned, like during the COVID pandemic, where the government was exercising some emergency powers, they were always subject to judicial review if yeah. they were outside of the legislation that they were being made under. Um, there were times where the the government had to um, come back to the parliament and to pass new legislation to give it additional powers so it could extend you know, the use of emergency powers or to give itself additional powers. Legislation had a 12-month time limit on it um, and on one occasion the government came back to extend that. On a second occasion it came back and actually introduced separate pandemic legislation that actually gave it different powers that it was able to exercise. Um, so those things, I suppose, where it's more that the, that the parliament, in a way, can also control the exercise of emergency powers um, by the government. 
Um, but also, yeah, they always would be subject to judicial review. And I suppose if um, the government has, has sought to continue to use emergency powers past the 12 months it was able to, um, that would be a matter that would go before the courts to um, resolve. Unpack Parliament. Despite these three groups being constitutionally separated, there is another major player in keeping Parliament in check simply by virtue of its existence. This is the fourth estate, or more commonly referred to as the media. The term was first penned by historian and MP Thomas Macaulay, who wrote in his 1828 essay, The gallery in which the reporters sit has become a fourth estate of the realm. The word has roots in 19th century England, where the British parliamentary system, which had the three divisions of the estate of the clergy, the estate of the nobility, and the estate of the commoners. The fourth estate was a natural offshoot of those three divisions. Nevertheless, the media continues to play an important role in Victoria's democracy through its reporting on relevant news stories. Here's Nine News' state political reporter Mark Santomartino to explain. My name's Mark Santomartino. I've been a reporter at Channel Nine News for uh, six and a half years and I've been doing the state political round for a little more than two now. We are the fourth estate, yeah. um, essentially, so... Look, the media has a really important role, and it's not just in politics, it's in everything really, to make sure that people are held to account. Like we obviously have a justice system and if there's criminal behaviour, that's where that needs to be held to account. But just more generally speaking, especially in the context of politics, a lot happens through the media and if it's not, if people don't have an avenue for attention through the media, then sometimes things don't get done. Mark continues by providing an example of this through the case of infamous Melbourne serial killer Paul Denyer. In the early 90s, Paul committed a series of killings and was charged with three counts of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. 30 years on, however, now, that question of whether Paul is entitled to parole is brought up again. Mark explains the media's role in bringing light to that story. And a really good example of that right now is what's happening with Paul Denyer. Obviously, that story... His story is is absolutely atrocious, but 30 years on, there was the prospect of him potentially getting out of prison or at least applying for parole, which was a harrowing experience for the families. Now, maybe something would have been done had there not been as much attention on it, but because of the confusion, because of the struggle that a lot of those families went through um, in trying to achieve some sort of clarity out of the government and out of the parole board, the Premier finally indicated that they are going to change the laws around parole. Now, if that didn't have as much attention through the media, then things might not have changed. But we were in effect, and I'm not saying we just exclusively at Channel 9, but through radio, talkback, through newspapers, through the media, that or more traditional media like TV, as well as new media on social media, that, that level of presence and that pressure um, makes it a community issue that forces a government to act. And then on the flip side of that, there's obviously the the negative things like corruption, which, yes, we've got watchdogs like the Ombudsman and IBAC, but we play a bit of a role in that too. If this discussion has raised issues with you or someone you know, you can contact one of the following services, Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 and Lifeline 13 11 14. Ultimately, these three branches plus the media as the fourth estate hold each other to account. They ensure that decisions on legislation are good, and considering the high stakes of the running of a state, everything they do is always up for scrutiny. Parliament's bicameral structure ensures that the government of the day doesn't always have the majority say on any one bill. Government must also advise on things like annual budgets, parliamentary inquiries and other regular reports on their work so that nothing is missed. Further, 
With any bill passed, it is constitutionally blocked that the government can infringe on the judiciary's independence in any way, even during times of emergency, thus enabling the judiciary's just decisions on the validity of legislation and case facts without political input. Outside of the separation of powers, independent bodies exist to continue bolstering accountability within these places. Parliament and the government are subject to the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission, or IBAC, as well as the state's ombudsman. The media reports on topical issues, ensuring that members of the public are aware of the things ongoing in these institutions. They play a crucial role in providing a platform to those who need to voice their concerns and assist policymakers to prioritise issues of greater importance. Additional regulatory bodies and laws are in place to ensure the courts and media are held to account. And lastly, there's you. The people are the backbone of Parliament and the courts fair running. Both places, barring odd exceptions, are open to the public so that anyone can watch and see justice and democracy working. In conclusion, the separation of powers, the fourth estate, various independent organisations, and most importantly, the public, are vital in contributing to Victoria's democratic stability. The three branches hold each other to account, thus disallowing any one person, party, or branch of government to have too much say on any one matter. And those outside are also welcome in challenging the things that may not seem quite right. As a result, we all benefit from a more solid parliament that can effectively focus its efforts on benefiting the Victorian people. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Unpack Parliament. We've got episodes coming out for the next four weeks. You can also find updates on the Parliament of Victoria's website. Another huge thank you to Michael O'Brien MP, Mark Santomartino and Judge Philip Misso for speaking with us. This episode of Unpack Parliament was written, performed and produced by Josh Weaver, Max Amani, Radhi Rashdan and Rowan Farrell. Thanks again and farewell.